and the number of people I've talked to, founders that have told me that, oh, I've talked to 200 people. I'm like, great. How many of them turned into customers? And they're like, none. I'm like, did you don't have product market fit? <laughs> you wasted your time 200 times in a row and you wasted 200 people's time. Welcome to Startup Health Now, the podcast where we celebrate the entrepreneurs and innovators who are transforming health. I'm your host, Logan Plaster. As we have reported recently, the health tech funding landscape has tightened in the last year. In other words, it's harder to raise money for your business. But there's an upside to this cooler market. There's a heightened emphasis being put on the fundamentals of business, like cash flow and profitability. That means less noise being generated around innovations that turn out to be smoke and mirrors and more focus on smart, sustainable business ideas. That's good news for the right kind of founders, ones we call health transformers. Not that this is easy, which is partially the point. When a startup is facing an ever-shrinking runway and having to show strong revenue numbers, it can be difficult to take the time to formulate a cohesive sales strategy, one that allows the business not only to survive the long sales cycle in healthcare, but thrive long-term as it seeks to achieve its audacious health moonshot. To help founders tackle this thorny question head on, we invited in Colin Stewart, the CEO of Predictable Revenue. The conversation was hosted by my colleague, Jamie Edwards, in front of a live virtual audience of founders from the Startup Health portfolio. They cover themes like being radically open to market feedback, and even pull some wisdom from Colin's days as a professional musician. Now, over to Jamie to kick things off. How do you make the transition from you know, musician, uh, to being foolish enough to start a CRM company. How does that, how does that happen and occur? I think I always wanted to be an entrepreneur and sales is about as close as you can get. And I thought, you know, I've got some experience in this space. I had an insight that I weaponized and wasted a ton of my time and customer time. Everybody at Launch Academy told me this is a terrible idea, but I had this insight and I knew this insight was true. I just misapplied it and said, oh, well, if this is true, then I'll build a CRM company, which was not the right application of that insight. Um, I should have gone and done some more customer development and that probably would have saved me a ton of time, a ton of effort, would have saved me years of my life and might've put me back on the, put me on a, a much different path than I'm on today. So as you were going through the evaluation process, you know, how did you decide what to build or what not to build? How did you figure out you know, your own product market fit as you were building this company? So the honest answer is that I, I did this multiple times. And for the first one or two times, uh, I think I just decided I'm going to build a CRM company. Um, and people, people would ask me like, why? And I'm like, well, there's this, I have this insight. Um, so that was the first way I did it. The second way I did it was idea validation. And I'm not recommending doing this, but I said, okay, well, I've got the CRM that I've already decided I'm going to build. And I'm going to build it this way. So I went and talked to 50 sales leaders, which is good. It's great to talk to 50 sales leaders, but I didn't listen to them. And I didn't ask genuine open questions about what should I be doing? What pains are you experiencing? When I went and built it and I came back and asked them for some money, they're like, yeah, I'm not paying for that. So that didn't work really well. So moral of the story, right? It's not just about asking. It's really what you ask and how you ask it that really makes a difference there. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? For sure. Yeah. I mean, I think first off was the mindset of, of just being open to, oh, my buddy Kenny said it really nicely the other day, uh, radically open to like market feedback, um, <laughs> uh, radically honest with yourself about 
where you're really at. Um, and I, I wasn't honest with myself. I wasn't honest with the customers. Not that I was lying to customers. I just, um, I had this idea and I was trying to validate it. So when I got it right, it was setting down. It was, I think what I, and this is like, I'm backcasting a whole bunch um, and summarizing because this is only an hour talk today. Um, but when I look at it, I think the things that worked well was I accepted the fact that I don't have product fit. I also accepted the fact that I had this insight and that was also valid. So I had an insight, but I didn't yet have product market fit. I hadn't applied that insight in a productive way to, to build something or to identify a pain, a problem, an opportunity well enough. And when I accepted that, I was able to put down the ideas and say, okay, this Colin doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. So let's just stop and let's go ask people what sucks in their life. And when I stopped trying to validate my ideas and started asking questions, asking questions, like genuine questions to try and understand with no agenda other than tell me what sucks, tell me what's good, like set the context, ask them, what are you struggling with? That was really turning the corner for me. So, you know, you're not just a practitioner, you're a founder as well. Um, you're on the call with, you know, all healthcare founders um, right now. Um, talk to me, you had mentioned customer development before, like, what does that mm -hmm. mean? How did you achieve it for your companies? How can these founders on the phone apply that same founders on the zoom, um, apply that same customer development model? It's a, it's a great question. If you don't mind, can I take a short detour to Absolutely. get there? Absolutely. All detours. Welcome. Awesome. Um, this might be a bit of a cul-de-sac, but we'll see. Um, for context, predictable revenue, been there 10 a bit spent 10 years since I was doing the dumb CRM stuff. It's all been the same company. I went dumb CRM company, bad idea onto carb.io. Um, we could talk about the process of like pivoting, evaluating, talking to customers. Then we went into predictable revenue, which was more booking meetings for companies or helping companies build sales development teams based on the predictable revenue methodology. The reason why that's important is I have sat with, uh, I helped Uber build their first sales development team. I helped Toptal build their first sales development team. Um, we've got a couple other companies that I can't say yet, but fairly large software companies building their first sales development team. And those are cool and impressive names to be able to drop. But the most interesting piece for me is that I've also helped their not so fast followers try to build sales development teams because people heard that, oh, you worked with these companies, they come to you. And so I'd been able to take this campaign that we did for one company that was doing really, really well. And three years later, trying to recreate it and lo and behold, it didn't work very well. And so that to me was the most interesting experience. And it wasn't just, you know, those companies, we've probably helped somewhere between 500 and a thousand companies, um, actually build a sales development, uh, team for them, um, in some context. And to be able to see that over and over and over again, and be on conversations like my background is in sales i was on all of the conversations up to a million dollars in revenue i pick up conversations uh, whenever our aes go on holidays i do i cover for them because i think it keeps me fresh um and i just i've had a chance to see and talk to thousands of founders about what they're trying to achieve and the stories have been the same um you know they're the i think the biggest thing and here comes the we'll get back off the detour and back to the main roads here. But the number one reason why, you know, people always ask me like, what's your ideal customer? Who's the best type of customers for you? And the answer is probably companies with product market fit. 
uh, companies with product market fit that can communicate to me what that product is and what it does for a specific market. Because it's one thing to have customers that pay you for stuff. It's another thing to be able to articulate an ideal customer profile in a way that allows a go-to-market team to go and find more of those customers and acquire them. Because it can be true that you have customers, but you are not able to close more customers that look just like that. And so that's been the, like one of the biggest things is being able to see companies with and without product market fit or companies with product market fit try and fire up a go-to-market channel and it not work for six months. And they're like, we have customers, we're signing customers through inbound. And then you realize like, yes, you have product market fit. You just did an awful job of describing this type of customer. Or when you're, um, when we were going outbound, you were using the wrong language. You were trying, you're starting with the wrong value prop. Like the, the net net was companies that were hiring us. They either didn't know their customers or they, they didn't have product market fit or they had product market fit, but they didn't know their customers well enough to articulate it to us so we could go and recreate the magic. Um, because when you're going outbound, like failure is basically crickets and it's a, like an unkind learning environment. So it's really challenging to try and learn from crickets. The only thing you can do is sort of A, B, A, B, A, B, A, B, A, B, all the way down. We've got kind of a methodology for doing that. And so it's been a really interesting experience when we think about like the importance of customer development, the importance of product market fit. And to answer your question, what is customer development? It is what I was doing poorly at the very beginning with Vulture CRM. It's what I think I did well at carb.io um, in that sitting with customers and saying, okay, Dan, they're basically customer development process is a method for sitting down with customers and understanding what their unmet needs are. And then, so it's basically the first half of the sales equation. Um, there's no, it's not bringing in any biases or assumptions. It's sitting down and saying, hey, let me understand the context of your day. And then, you know, you basically walk them towards the question of, if I could solve any problem for you related to X, what would it be? This is the magic question that I never asked. And, and I found, and I got this from Michelle Feaster, who started UserMind. Um, if anybody's read the hard thing about hard things, she's the person in the story that acquired, um, uh, is it, which, which company was it? Uh, Jamie, I know it, it was, it was Mark's company at the time. I'm drawing a blank on it, but anyway, she, it was HP. And when they bought Opsware, I think, yep. and then, so she became Mark Andreessen's boss at HP or she bought his company. He became her boss, brought her into Andreessen Horowitz. And I got a chance to sit down and spend a couple hours with her talking about how she built it out at Andreessen Horowitz and how she built it out at UserMind. So I stole this question from her. Um, there's another author, there's an author out there that I stole the next two questions from, which are the three together have really helped me get a grasp of like, what is the opportunity space? So I'll loop through the questions because sometimes it's just kind of complainy, right? Sometimes it's just, oh, well, this sucks. It's like, okay, well, yes, that sucks. It's a structural thing. It's not something that I can solve or it's not something that I'm positioned to solve. And so I'll say, okay, and what else? Um, and when I find a pain that's in the direction of the insight that I'm working on, I will ask the two following questions. On a scale of one to 10, how important is this to you? And what you're looking for is 10 out of 10 importance. Great. Because what I did with Voltage was kind of asking the same question. Everybody's like, oh yeah, sales forecasting, huge problem. Sales productivity, huge problem. 
And then I went and built Voltage and people were like, I'm not paying for that. And I was like, why? They're like, we're pretty satisfied. So the second question is on a scale of one to 10, how satisfied are you with how you're currently solving it? Those three questions, uh, like that's the, that's the magic. And the sad piece is like most people don't ask those questions. And so you don't really have a strong understanding. But if that's the only thing you take away from whatever this is today, this fireside chat, like steal those three questions and use them hundreds of times and it'll make everything easier. Because the two of those just questions- comments, Just for the, just nail those three questions in a row for us in one quick succession. For sure. So if I could solve any problem for you related to X, what would it be? On a scale of one to 10, how satisfied, or sorry, on a scale of one to 10, how happy are you? Or how important? You asked me to do something and I'm like, nah, I'm not going to do it. Let me try it again. <laughs> if I could solve any problem for you related to X, what would it be? On a scale of one to 10, how important is that to you? On a scale of one to 10, how satisfied are you with how you're currently solving it? And the reason those two, those last two questions are really important, you're obviously looking for high importance, low satisfaction, but I, I put all my customer insights into a Google sheet afterwards and I'll, I'll lay them all out and label them. And I've got all the context information. And I think Rob's probably seen my giant spreadsheet. That's literally this long that I can't fit onto an ultra wide monitor. Um, and what it allows me to do is he's probably in that. I know you're in that sheet as well. Um, is I can actually, I can create, I can map the opportunity score based on, um, you can do kind of like you could graph the surface area of that square, or you can just kind of come up with a rating system of like how much pain is really there. Because what we're really looking for is like 10 twos, right? 10 importance, two satisfactions. Um, that's a real opportunity. That's something worth doing. And the the kind of, I think the driving, I can't remember who said it, um, but it was one of the customer development interviews I was doing. Um, and they basically, they said like, why are you bothering to recreate what already exists? Why aren't you working on solving a new problem? Like, why don't you, why aren't you working on solving something that hasn't been solved before? And it was such a kind question. That was such a gut punch that probably took a couple months to like really truly sink in because as Mina knows me, I can be a little bit thick headed at times, just a touch. So it kind of takes time for thing to, things to absorb. Um, but yeah, that was the, that was the kind of process. That's why I think customer development is so important. Um, and the, the reason why it's helpful context is when I sit down with founders that are trying to build an outbound team, I will ask questions like this. Like, so what is, what is the pain? What is the unique thing that you're doing and this and this and that? And I'm so tired of hearing people say, oh, well, our people are the best and our customer service is the best and our UI is the best. And it's like, well, that it's good for you that you have customers that like this. But when I'm going cold outbound and I'm trying to write some messaging, that's going to really interest people. Like anybody else can say that. And if you don't, I found that the people that don't really truly understand their customers at this kind of jobs to be jobs to be done level at this unmet needs level or customers that do, but there aren't that level of unmet needs, their sales development campaigns don't do well. It is, I want customers to have product market fit because it makes my job so much easier. I can hardly take any credit for our most successful customers because the truth is our most successful customers have a great product. They have a huge market. Our job is super, super easy. Where I deserve most credit for is getting middling results for a really struggling customer. That's where like all of our, that's where we lose all of our margin. That's where we 
right. do the most work. Those customers take up the most time. They're the hardest to work with. Um, but uh, that's why I got into doing talks like this was because I was just tired of people coming in without, you know, the understanding of what it really takes to go from your initial kind of group of your network, your founders network, your investors network, and those customers that know you and trust you and are willing to give you a shot to building that first go-to-market, that first kind of external go-to-market channel. You have, again, a bunch of founders on uh, this call who would love to know how to put the predictable and predictable revenue. Um, you know, what classifies something is now becoming predictable in your mind? Um, and what what tactically can these founders do on the phone to make what might be their revenue predictable revenue? Great question. I mean, the the secret uh, formula to predictable revenue, secret, not so secret, is uh, consistent top of funnel multiplied by consistent process equals predictable revenue. And both of those are very hard things. And I would say, I'd, if you want to take a step back in the context of a startup, I'd put those two, and this is this is the extent of my mathematical skills. So I, I would put those that equation in brackets, I know it's simple multiplication, but I'd put that in brackets and then I'd put product market fit before that. I guess you're over here. So product market fit before that. And I would say that your go-to-market team is basically an amplification of your product market fit. And if you want to look at it from a an investor standpoint, if you're thinking about allocating funds within your company, the this is really a sales effectiveness formula. So if you have strong product market fit and strong top of funnel, strong uh, process, you will have a really strong, a really great number for your sales efficiency, sales effectiveness. If you have a great sales team, great top of funnel, great process, terrible product market fit, your cost to acquire a customer is going to be huge. If you have great product market fit, but no top of funnel, no process, it's also going to be huge or non-existent, or you're not going to be able to break into new markets. So on that, um, you know, we just talked about product market fit a bunch. Let's, let's double click there. Um, in your mind, what does great product market fit look like and feel like? Oh, good question. The the um, the phrase that I remember most recently was, "Ah, you could do that." <laughs> um, the what it felt like when I was moving from the from Voltage CRM to after that, I went to like. I think it was Carb, but it was basically like, "Hey, I'll book meetings for you. I will be an SDR and an SDR software." I used it just a, a great tool. I mean, it's janky now, but in in hindsight, it was super janky, but I used a tool called yet another mail merge, which was just like this mail merge tool in Google Sheets that was free. That was like our basis for the early days of predictable revenue. And when I made the transition from like trying to sell CRM that nobody wanted to, you know, trying to figure out what to do next, my, I promised our engineering team you're not going to write another line of code until I have five paying customers. And when I've realigned and started asking people what they really wanted, one of the things I was doing really well for myself is I had read this book and I was using predictable revenue to book tons of meetings. And I was annoying everybody at Launch Academy because I was always talking to customers. And this was a room full of engineers, a co-working space here in Vancouver. And uh, when I started doing proper customer development, people would say like, oh, you, you're working on this? Like you can, wait, you can book meetings over email. And I know this doesn't sound new or revolutionary now, but 10 years ago, it was 
maybe at least in Vancouver, not as not as well known that you could do it or how to do it. Um, and when we started doing that, the first five interviews I did turned into seven customers. I had an offer at the end of every customer development interview because I said, hey, I've got a rough idea of what I wanted to do. I'll do it manually first. I'll be the sort of Wizard of Oz approach. And at the end of every customer development interview, my plan was to ask them, hey, if I can do this thing for you, it's going to be, you know, I came up with the pricing on the spot because the first one I did was Mac. And he's like, he's like, you, you were going to do this for me. Yeah, those of you that know Mac, they're the crypto kitties guy. Uh, he's like, you're going to do this for me. Um, and like bullied me into like doing it for him. I didn't come with an offer. I didn't come with like, uh, knowing all this Mac pulled it out of me. Um, and then I met with the, the team over at bench and Jordan's like, yeah, yeah, I'll give you 500 bucks if you do this. Um, but you also got to let my other buddy in. And so it was, you know, Mac and Jordan and James, and we had all these people. I did five interviews and I got seven paying customers out of those first five interviews. To me, that's, it was the feeling of working on a startup is hard. There's a lot of unknowns. There's a lot of things you do that have consequences three, six, 12 months down the road. It, it was that feeling of like, you've been pushing a giant rock up a hill and suddenly that rock was lighter. You're like, oh, is it? It's so much lighter than it used to be. That kind of feels nice. And then by the fifth interview where I had seven customers, it was rolling downhill and I was running after it because like I couldn't, no, I, like I could sell and it was, it was fun to be able to sell, but there was also a part of my brain that's like, Hey, you did the math on like what a sane person can deliver with the given process. And like five was the absolute max. So like slow down, use your road sets calling. Uh, cause I had to run down after this boulder in November was a disaster. My wife referred to me as the ghost of dirty dishes. I just, I didn't see her for like a month. Um, and then I was like, okay, we're just doing it for November. It's just a one month test, $500. And at the end, uh, my now good friend, James was like, what if I gave you $10,000? What could you do in December? And it was the first time somebody was coming to me and saying, Hey, I want to give you not just a little bit of money. I want to give you a whole lot of money, uh, because the impact was, was there. Um, and I'm not saying this to, to brag because it was, if, if I was to do that again, that service was awful what we did for the people, but we actually, I mean, we're generating back then you could get crazy responses. Like we were, we got like the CEO of Walmart and Jimmy Wales replied back the developer from Square Enix, which is the makers of Final Fantasy, like replied back all in that month. And it was like, holy crap, this is real. It was janky. It was awful, but it worked. And it was that feeling of momentum. And suddenly, like, I had a trip to Costa Rica planned for January that I had to cancel because I think we had 10 or 12 customers by January that those first five customers, before I, I even got in, they had introduced me to another two. And then they all wanted to upsell in December. Um, and I said, no, I'm planning on going away and this and this and that. And they convinced me to continue doing it. And then by January, um, I think those customers were happy enough that they were introducing me to other customers. So I had 12 and I suddenly had inbound and like inbound off of, um, referrals. So, so is that, that feeling, that excitement? Yeah. And are there quantifiable metrics that you would use to actually be able to, as a founder say, you know what, this is working. I mean, clearly revenue is going to be one of them. We're signing more clients, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But 
what metrics might be out there and they could be non-standard, right? It could be, you know, something that you've created on your own. I mean, but what does it look like? Hmm, great question. It's almost like we planned this out. Um, I, I like almost, I, I like to steal from Dave McClure cause I, I was trying to, I spent try, time trying to articulate that feeling cause it is like, I still get excited thinking about it and feeling it. And I felt it a couple of times. Um, and like, the second time we did it, we zeroed up 60K a month of recurring in like two months, which was also insane. Um, and then back down because we just, yeah, lots of learnings. Um, but I think about like, if you've heard of, you you might've heard of Dave McClure's Pirate Metrics, uh, Dave McClure, founder of 500 Startups. And I like to think through that, but I drop revenue. And so it's activation, uh, acquisition, activation, uh, retention and then referral, well, revenue and then referral. So I skip revenue. Um, and I, I do like a, a modified version for like early product market fit. And the act uh, the acquisition is when you reach out and talk to somebody, you know, they're willing to talk to you. And then when you ask them if they want to, so for context, I do this through my customer development process. So I am one booking. I'm reaching out to people on LinkedIn saying, Hey, can I pick your brain on X? I'm working on a project. This is not a sales call, yada, yada, yada. So the first indication is like, are people for activate or for acquisition, are people willing to take my call? If we do the customer development interview and I've got a small offer at the end, it's usually like a, Hey, do you want to try this out? Would you have a look at it? Um, do you want to do like, I've got a couple startups that I've, I've done and it's either, do you want to try out the software? Do you want to buy like a small, small offer where it's like one twentieth of the value? It's very clearly and obviously an amazing deal, but I want somebody to change hands as a proof point that this is a real thing. So that's the first step. When you ask them, do you want to do it? Do you want to try it? Will they say yes? And then step two is also very, very important. If they say yes, and I think about it as like a pipeline or a funnel or stages. So you want to count the number of people that go into each and the amount the number of people that pass to the next stage, true salesperson right here. Um, maybe a true sales leader, maybe not a true salesperson, <laughs> um, acquisition to activation of the people that said, yes, I would do it. How many of them actually, you send them a link, you send them an invoice. How many of them actually click sign up or pay? Um, that's your sort of activation. The next is the retention of the people that paid of the people that signed up of the people that said they would do the thing, did they do the thing and did they keep doing the thing regularly? And from, and so that's how I track or think about retention. And then the last spot is referral. Are they so happy with the service, with the product, with the offering, with whatever you're doing for them, that they are telling their friends and those friends are inbounding to you or their friends are asking for referrals to you where they're sending you referrals. So when you ask them, Hey, do you want to check it out? They say, yes. When you send them the link, they click on it. When they click on it, they actually use it. Um, and they keep using it. And then it's so great. They tell their friends. So those are kind of the four steps I look at to like quantifying product market fit. Um, and again, pirated from Dave McClure's pirate metrics. No, that's great. And a great reference to Dave there, uh, that we can look up and follow up on. Um, just as a reminder and a PSA for everybody, uh, if you could put your questions into the chat, we're going to be entering uh, your opportunity to get some, you know, insights directly from Colin. So as you uh, come up with questions, please put them in there. I see Beth is already ahead of the game and adding one there. And Beth, I'll get to that in a second. Um, but before we get to questions from the audience, 
what comes first in your mind, right? When you're building a great sales org, is it process, people, technology? Like, mm. what is the cadence that you look for? And then when it comes down to the people to kind of build off a question that Beth has, how do you know if you're hiring the right people? How do you qualify great salespeople? Take us through that journey. Perfect. So two questions. Uh, first one is, how do I know when to build the first sales team? And like, what does that look like? And then who do I hire? So three questions. Good promise. My math isn't that strong. Oh, you're great. You're, you're on it. So my, I, I feel pretty strongly that as a, as a founder CEO, your job is everything. And that includes selling. Um, the, one of the things I've seen a number, so, uh, my personal bias is, and I, I understand I, I spent 10 years in sale in sales before I started my company. So I had an edge, I had an advantage, um, in that respect. Um, but the number of companies that I've seen come through where the founder is trying to outsource the sales and not just outsource, but also like fully abdicate cause they want to focus on product or engineering or whatever. Uh, those haven't ever gone well. I, and I can't say categorically, those have never gone well, but I would say it's a, when I'm talking to somebody, it's a massive risk factor and I'm not an investor, um, but you know, our customers, you know, we're a recurring revenue business. And so we want to have long-term customers. I don't want to invest a bunch of time and resources in somebody that's going to, you know, come in, cause a lot of headaches and then churn out after three months. Um, and so I, I look for founder led selling. I did it up to a million dollars in revenue because that revenue, our revenue model made sense at that time. I probably spent about a year. It was zero to a million bucks in ARR in about a year. Um, and, um, and like 83, 333 monthly is my, like, that was my goalpost. That's when I passed it off. Um, and so that's kind of what I would look for is like, if as the, cause the, the last thing I'll say there is that this isn't customer development. These are customer development interviews, unless there is the, the threat or the possibility or the reality of them eventually turning into customers. Otherwise it's just market research. There's no teeth to it. And the number of people I've talked to founders that have told me that, oh, I've talked to 200 people. I'm like, great. How many of them turned into customers? And they're like, none. I'm like, then you don't have product market fit. <laughs> you wasted your time 200 times in a row and you wasted 200 people's time. Um, and I'm not, it's probably not as, as uh, mean as that, but if you are working on something truly unique, that is a huge pain, people are going to track you down and they're going to pull you into their lives. And so, you know, if you're doing this, you know, the, the founder's role is to be that closer because you are the person, I'm assuming you are the person that generated the product that did the customer development inter interviews. You are the single person that knows the customer, the pain and the market the best. It's your responsibility to make sure you translate that into revenue. Uh, it's one thing to know it. It's another thing to do something with that knowledge. And I think that's really where, um, maybe a message that I might have needed to hear a little bit. And so I'm, I'm sharing it here. Um, and so first salesperson needs to be the CEO. The second salesperson, it's probably a closer. Now you can get some variability based on, you know, the type of sales process that you run into. And we could talk about selling to medical, to government, to B2B, to B2C. I'm not really a B2C guy. So yeah, unless you want to talk about how to sell hockey skates, um, I'm probably not your guy, um, on the B2C side. Um, but I'd say in general, if I'm talking to a B2B startup with like a 10 to, you know, 10 K to 250 K or million dollar deal size, 
you're probably looking at hiring an A, A and AE uh, first. Um, it might be a sales development rep. It kind of depends on the type of type of inbound, the you know whatever channels are working for you. Um, but a call in that is, is there to help you do the execution side of the sales process. I would I would first hire them. I give them a month of like understanding, doing some of the customer development interviews themselves. Um, like no quota, give them full pay, no, no bonus, no variable, no anything for about the first three months. And their goal would be to be able to replicate, uh, the knowledge, the secret sauce that I have as a founder, because the truth is if you're a founder and you're a closer, here's like a bonus is you probably have a 30 to 50% improvement or bonus to your close rate because you're the founder, because you know so much and the CEO title carries significant weight with customers. And so when you are looking to transition from yourself closing to an AE closing, you need to be aware that there is a significant boost that comes to the close rates that comes from being the founder, that comes from being the CEO. Um, a lot of that comes from really understanding the, the customer deeply, but some of that comes from the title. Uh, people just like talking to the founder. And so that might still be a part of your role. But I think to to build uh, to build on the onboarding plan, like having them replicate customer development process is super important, especially at an earlier stage company. Now here's the secret. Here's the, here's where you can get more out of this person's onboarding. Um, one, have them do customer development to non people that are not currently customers, right? That would be my first step. Have them recreate what I did to get to this market opportunity. Second, I would have them do customer development interviews with my current customers. And I would add on some of the t typical HubSpot case study questions have them record those and then write them up. And now this person has three to five case studies from customers that they not only can send, but they can also speak to. Because chances are you don't have enough case studies. And as Mina can attest to, we saw a huge boost in conversion and pipeline and everything when we had strong case studies uh, on our website and that our salespeople were able to speak to. And that's the number one thing that most startups don't have enough of. And I remember like it was a huge boost once we got them up and running. Um, and so not only like as an AE, if I can zoom into that role for a minute, that's one of the hardest things is to be able to speak to another customer through the eyes uh, or to a prospect through the eyes of your customer. To be able to say, oh yes, you know, and you probably you've dealt with this and you're probably struggling with that. I know this because I was having a conversation with so-and-so and this and this and that. You're filling up your talk track. You're filling up your unconscious uh, memory with all of these examples, this understanding, because the AE now has to go and empathize with your future customers. And the only way you can do that is if you really understand the unmet needs that your prospects might have. And so hire an AE. Um, what I would look for, and I'm not addressing structure, I'll come to structure in a second, but what I would look for in that AE, somebody who's been an SDR before, because somebody who's went SDR to AE respects the value of a meeting. They understand the hustle and effort that it took to get that meeting on, uh, to show up, uh, and the right person, but they also understand how to work a long-term follow-up game and how to get the most out of every single meeting that they get. And I can go, I've got a soapbox I can stand on for an hour about why most of the people you talk to aren't going to be ready yet. And you really have to have different ways of handling those, but I'll, I'll put a pin in that. Cause again, I could talk forever, 
Um, so I would hire somebody with sales development experience that is now an AE that's got one to three years of AE closing experience that is also on a high career arc. So it doesn't have to be a young person, but somebody new into the sales sales world. So kind of like two to four years of sales, at least one as an SDR, at least one as an AE, um, and is on and is smart, curious, willing to own their growth and like take ownership over that and, and really do that development because this person is going to be your first leader. And so the next person, so if you are able to hire a future leader, somebody who can build process, somebody who can hire people, somebody who can coach, but also close, I know this is sounding like a bit of a unicorn. Um, the next person is a sales development rep, somebody to fill that person's calendar and then probably another SDR and then maybe another AE and how that shakes out kind of depends on your go-to-market channels. And Colin, by the way, just on this point, maybe introduce people to what a properly constructed funnel looks like with the tools that you use for that part of the funnel, right? So started that yeah. top because I think what you're doing right now is great. I'd like to go farther down that path and like give people that insight. What I would, I think the first step is like, you know, I think Jamie, you asked earlier, what comes first? People process technology. I'm a big fan of like, obviously the person comes first because you're the CEO founder, you're there. Um, but your job as the first seller is to build process and then to find people to run that process and then find technology to enable the people um, in that order. So uh, people then process, then technology. A lot of people ask me, oh, should I buy outreach? Should I buy Apollo? I'm like, no. Like until you have a process, until you know who you're going to reach out to, why you're reaching out to them, what you're going to do and what the math looks like. And I've got like a sales dub math sheet I can share. My guess is without knowing Beth for very long, um, I'm going to make some assumptions based on what I know and it's probably wrong. Um, cause I've been an AE before I've been an AE at my company. I've been an SDR before. Um, my guess is they are maybe lumpy in their numbers, you know, get a bunch, do nothing, get a bunch, do nothing. This is a typical account executive sine wave of productivity. Um, I once hit my quota for the year in Q1 by like March, I had closed enough that I was over quota and hit bonus. And two years later, or two quarters later, I was almost fired because they're like, what have you done for me lately? I'm like, I'm still over quarter for the year. The truth is we had a really long sales cycle and our sales cycle was two and a half to three quarters and everything just happened to line up in Q1. But I'd been working on all those deals for six months. Um, this is why the idea of specialization of the sales roles really spoke to me was because you have, you basically dedicate one person to prospect. What is what I was, what was happening with me was I would prospect for six months or three months, or let's call it a quarter, make the math easy. Um, I'd prospect, I'd spend a whole quarter prospecting because my pipeline would be empty. Then Q2. Knowledge is really cool. That, that person's the SDR. Well, so the SDR is the prospector. Yeah. But when I'm, when I was a full cycle sales rep and I had to manage the full sales process, my Q1 was all prospecting. And then Q2, suddenly I've got all these proposals that I need to send to these customers I need to work. And then I go through that and I spend Q2 closing. And now I've got customers to manage now I'm the account manager. So now there's, I've gone from like baseline of zero work to baseline of like 15% of my day is managing client accounts. So now I have to go back and spend Q3 prospecting um, because my pipeline's now empty. And so I spent Q3 prospecting and then Q4 closing 
and then it just kind of does this and this and this. And then what happens is over about a year and a half, what happens is your AEs tend to go from prospectors to account managers because now they've got, they're hitting 50, 60% of quota just with their existing accounts. Sound maybe familiar? Um, and so <laughs> I've been there. Um, and it's hard because it is a job to manage accounts, but it's also very, very hard to go when you, when 60% of your quota is coming from here, it's hard to manage prospecting the right amount, closing account, managing accounts. It's three different jobs. What attracted me to predictable revenue at the book was the idea of specializing sales roles. So you have a prospector and all they do is book meetings. You have a closer and all they do is close deals and you have an account manager and all they do is manage accounts. Um, cause what typically happens is you've got the million dollar rep or the half million dollar rep, whatever it is now. And basically in three years, they're full up and they're an account manager and that's their kind of journey. So in order to build and that model only scales as if you add more customers or add more salespeople that now need to go through and fill their pipelines until they eventually get to account manager. It's a high risk model though, because the number of people that are good at prospecting and closing and account managing are, it's more rare, right? But it's the model that a lot of people employ. And so the specializing de-risks it a little bit because you can hire point people to do those. And then you can build a career path. You start as an SDR, you work into an AE or an account manager and up to an AE, then up to sales leader. Now you've got a bit of a career path. If I had to guess, and again, this is probably mostly wrong because we've only known each other for two minutes, but that's what I've seen happen a number of times. Um, and I, I could do a whole talk on hiring. Um, <laughs> cause I probably hired a couple hundred salespeople in the last two years, three years. Um, we've got a bit of a process. Um, but basically the short version is I would hire, I would design the org to have a specialized prospector sales development. Their only goal is to make cold emails, cold calls and book meetings. Um, then I would hire somebody specific to that role tends to be newer in their sales career, one to three years experience, hopefully no AE experience. So like CSM marketing experience, good other sales development experience, good fresh out of university. You could do it. You're going to have to coach them and teach them, but those are good hires. Um, and then I would get them specific tools for booking meetings. Like I think Apollo is probably for a startup is probably the it's Zoom info and outreach all in one. And it has the added benefit of you don't have to talk to Zoom info. Um, so closer, what is that closer title? Account exec, AE. Right. Then you've got the customer service team or account rep. Beyond managers or CSMs or whatever. Yeah. And so when you hire these so. people um, and you're thinking about scaling up your sales force, do you hire the three as a team? And then as you're scaling up, you'll hire another team and another team. Like, do they continue to work together or then do they cross pollinate across the different functions? Yeah. I mean, it depends on how the math breaks at the company, but I would hire one and have them like, if you got two, two AEs that have the SDR feeding both of them with meetings, that kind of gives you a sense of like, you know, um, which one is, is going to do the, do the work of following up. There's a lot more that goes into outbound than just like booking a meeting and then passing an office. Yeah. We don't have time for that today, but I can come back and we can talk more about that. Um, but I think I would hire one, have them service both, see how that's going. You may realize, oh, we got a weakness here. We got a weakness there. 
it, it's, I know I'm talking to startups. If you can hire two people, it's really great because when you're doing something new, hire two, I guess Jason Lemkin. Um, and basically what it allows you to do is calibrate. If you have a, um, is it a, do you have the right process and the wrong person? Or do you have, you know, like, it, is it the messaging? Is it the process? Is it the, the segment? Or is it the individual? And when you have two, you can get a kind of gauge. You basically get two kicks of the can to get one of them right. And if you happen to get, if they both happen to work out, then like, congratulations, you've got two ramped SDRs. Like, there's no wrong outcome. And I understand not everybody has the bank account to do that. So grains of salt here. Yeah. Well, Colin, we're coming to the end of our fireside chat here. This has been amazing. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with the crew. Um, but if you were thinking about what might be your tweetable takeaway from this session, right? What would you leave these founders with? I mean, I think the the number one thing that you can do to make sure that you're to de-risk your go-to-market is to make sure you have a really strong understanding of your customers and the unmet needs that you're solving for them. And the way to do that is just go out and talk to them. The best part is that's free. You ask them those three, I mean, you ask them the questions to set the context. You ask them, if I could solve any problem related to X, what would it be? How important is that to you? How satisfied are you? And if you are consistently finding people that are saying 10 and two, you know, telling you all the same thing and 10 importance to satisfaction, you've really got something there. That's the time, you know, and you are going through that pirate metrics loop of when you tell somebody about it, they use it, blah, 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 blah. They refer to their friends. That's generally where your first customers should come from. And then once you're going through that loop very consistently, you can keep doing that as a customer acquisition channel, as the founder, wink, that works well. I mean, you don't want to be selling on the call, but you can always have an offer at the end. And if you're doing this right, people will come to you and say, hey, you know, I, are you actually solving this? Can, can I get in? Can, I, can you help me? Can you talk more about this? Um, and then, yeah, from there, like once you're doing that and you have, you know, tens and twos, then that's the time to start building a go-to-market team. Thanks, Colin. Awesome to have you here today. Thank you for a really informative session. Uh, thanks, everybody. Have a great day. All right. Thanks for listening to Startup Health Now. Startup Health invests in health transformers around the world who are dedicated to achieving audacious health moonshots. If you want to learn how you can join this community of entrepreneurs, or if you want to connect with one of our 450 companies, go to startuphealth.com. If you'd like to learn how you can invest in our Health Moonshot Impact Fund, go to healthmoonshots.com. Thanks for listening to Startup Health Now. We'll be back again with another episode next week.